0: Well, good morning. If your Bible, if you have your Bible, excuse me, you can turn to page 815 in the church Bibles or you can turn to 1 Corinthians 15 in your own Bible. And what we're going to do is read the first 20 verses of chapter 15. And while you're turning there, just a few things. Um, Sunday, May 15th, we're going to begin a baptism class during our Bible class time. So if you haven't as of yet been baptized when you're considering that, um, that class would be a wonderful class to take and let you know uh, what baptism is and isn't. So just keep that in mind. Um, also, in the worship folder, uh, you may notice that there's points there and there's um, sub-points, picture one and picture two. Those subpoints, picture one and two, actually should be under affirmation and not foundation. So as we're moving along, just keep that in mind. And then one last thing, if you were here Easter, you probably remember that we spent... Our time in the first 19 verses of uh, 1 Corinthians 15. If you weren't here for that, you uh, you can listen to that sermon on our website, and um, that way you can kind of get a sense. We are actually going to work through it this morning, but we're more going to jog our way through it, and then we're going to land in verse 20, and we won't get past verse 20 this morning. So, okay, let's hear the word of the Lord. Now, brothers, and we'll say sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, and on it which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I received I passed on to you as first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 other brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles, and do not even desire to be called an apostle, or deserve, excuse me, to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it was I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believe. But if it's preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised, and if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead, but he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. Verse 20. The Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Amen. Let's bow together, please, and let's let's pray. O wretched man that I am, who will who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for the privilege of public worship and We would ask that you would send your Holy Spirit to illumine to us the words this morning. And we would ask that you'd be pleased to have your Spirit work in our hearts and minds in such a way that both in my speaking and our thinking and hearing and responding, that we may be equipped rightly to live for you in these days. May we respond properly and leave here joyfully. And Father, we seek you this morning with all our heart. And we need your help, God. We need all of your help in all of this. And so we ask for that now uh, for Jesus' sake. Amen. It's a long standing tradition in many Anglican churches that at the end of their communion service the whole congregation breaks out into a kind of threefold shout of joy and affirmation by saying together, Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. And they do this in part to affirm, number one, that this is the biblical gospel. And if your Bible's open, you can see very clearly that when Paul preached Christ in Corinth, he preached Christ died for the sins, and he was buried, and Christ has risen, and as a chapter unfolds, Christ will come again. And again, this is the biblical gospel. This is the one and only gospel that saves. And this gospel was, verse one, preached to the Corinthians and received by them, and this gospel, verse 2, save them as they hold on to its truth, since, since this gospel is why all true Christians are forgiven and are clean before God. This is why the Christian is righteous in God's sight. This is why and only why we have peace with God and no fear of what comes after our death. And this is why the true Christian has the certainty of a resurrected body forever with Jesus and his people in the new heaven and the new earth. And each of these pleasures, these thrilling pleasures, and there are so many, many more, they are granted only because Christ has died for our sins, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. And by God's grace, we receive this gospel, and by God's grace, we believe this gospel and are saved. That's number one. The second thing is that the churches which practice this affirmation are simply upholding what Paul was writing in verse 3. And again, if your Bible's open, you see that little phrase of first importance. Protos is the Greek word, meaning this is the most important thing, this is the best, this is first. Foundational, primary. In other words, we cannot build a Christian life on any other foundation. This is the one that we must build on because there is no other foundation. So you can build certainly a religious life, but that life has an expiration date and that life cannot take away sin. You can build a religious, duty bound life, deeply committed to do good deeds, but also. That life has an expiration date, and that life can't take away sin. You may remember the words of Jesus to the religious might of his day, Matthew twenty-three, fifteen. Woe to you, teachers of the law and the Pharisees, you hypocrites. Why, Jesus? Well, this is what he said. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert, religious duty, and when you have succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. Now, do you understand what's happening? All that preparation for the trip, and you still don't love Jesus. And you can build a life filled with family values and you can have a stunning marriage and as good as those things are, those things do not take away your sins. Consequently, the Christian will never grow past verse 3. Christ died for sins. Verse 4, he was buried, he was risen and he appeared. Each then according to the scriptures. And loved ones, that is the biblical gospel. This is what you believe if, verse 2, you are saved. And we will not, grow to any degree of usefulness without holding to that foundation. And so what was happening here is Paul, by saying what he says in verse 1, I want to remind you, gnosko is the Greek word. I want to help you to become closer, more intimately closer with the gospel that I preach to you. That's what he's saying. And what he's doing is is tactful. In a tactful way, he's saying to these Corinthians, who were so easily sidetracked by secondary issues in the previous chapters. What he's saying is, hey guys, whether or not you speak in tongues, and whether or not you practice prophecy, and whether or not you are mega spiritual and you're moving along in those things, those things are not foundational. They are not primary. They're not the best. They're not first. They're not the most important. And you cannot build a life pleasing to God on that kind of foundation. And our deal in our day may not be tongues or prophecy. It may be something altogether different. Something altogether different which pulls us away and we begin to wander away from this foundation or we try to add to the foundation and somehow subtly untie ourselves to the fact that we are sinners and that we do regrettably sin every day. In fact, there are times when we are not even aware of our sin. And because of that, we need an everyday gospel, and we need an everyday Savior. And in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have it. In other words, since our battle with indwelling sin will be with us to our last breath, and since on occasion we will lose that battle, our morality may never be the foundation of our faith. Consequence of our faith? Absolutely. A byproduct? For sure. But not our foundation. Because we need a foundation which is stout, which is unchanging and unbreakable. A foundation that has nothing to do with ourselves. Has nothing to do with works. Has nothing to do with religious works or religious routines. Has nothing to do with spiritual experiences, as in the case of some in the Corinthian church has nothing to do with self-justification or any kind of unhealthy comparison that we may be tempted to, to make with each other. You know, who's the holiest Joe around here, right? I read six chapters in the New Testament yesterday. Oh, yeah, well, I read six chapters in Greek. Oh, yeah, well, I read it while I was fasting. So take that. We don't need none of that. And it also has nothing to do with the Christian's mis- Guided condemnation of the outside world for getting that foundational statement here, the Christians have been saved by grace. The outside world is being what they are. They're slaves to sin. It's original sin's consequences. So they need our gospel. They don't need our snobbishness. They don't need us hiding, if you would, in our holy huddles. They don't need us boasting. Well, I thank God, Luke 18, I thank God that I'm not like them. We are like them. We are like them, except for Jesus. Now, remember, the Corinthian church had this massive problem with boasting, right? For example, 1 Corinthians 4, 8, Paul is kind of mocking them. Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Already you've begun to reign. You're kings. You're honored. Man, guys, you are living the dream. 1 Corinthians 3, 1 through 21, 1 Corinthians 5, 6, 1 Corinthians 1, 31. Paul is telling them, would you please stop boasting in yourselves? Now think with me. They had such a poor understanding of the gospel. They had such a worldly view of the church. They had such an inflated view of themselves because of their poor understanding of the gospel, which made them think they could judge others and they could judge Paul and they could split people up and they could do worship their own way and they could dabble in immorality and they won't be ruled by anyone and they were just a wreck of a church. Why? Because they were placing all their confidence in themselves, all their confidence in their spiritual experience, all their confidence in the gifts and you get this sense, now listen carefully, you get this sense that they never really were excited about Jesus himself. That, you know, they never had a tender and kind of heartfelt appreciation of the man on the cross, right? They would be the kind of people who was always angry at the world, and I can't believe this is happening, and oh God, we need to go back to this, and oh God, we need to go back to that. When was there ever a time when the world or America did not need the gospel? When? They were boasting about themselves. They were not boasting in the Lord Jesus Christ. You get the sense that very few of their conversations would have the word Jesus in it. And so what Paul has to do is he has to pull them back near the end of the chapter and near the end of the letter and say to them, brothers and sisters, because they were Christians, right? They still were Christians, as bad as they were. Grace was abounding. You guys, I want to remind you of the gospel. Now, Paul does the same thing to the church in Philippi. Chapter 3, verse 3. Hey, Paul, would you please tell me what a Christian is? And this is what Paul says. First line, we, we, we glory in Christ Jesus, and we put no confidence in the flesh. Now, that's right. We find our joy in Jesus Christ alone and put no confidence in what we are in the flesh or what we do in the flesh. We make much of Jesus. This is what Christians do. We make much of Jesus. And we don't make too much of ourselves. We make much of Jesus because of what he did on the cross because that's our foundation. We, we, we put away our rhetoric on our latest and greatest religious action. We, we put away our rhetoric on how good we might be compared to the outside world. We put that away because if we're going to have one thing to say, it's going to be say, saying something good, something boastful about Jesus Christ because of what he's done. Now, loved ones, apply this if we need to. Clearly, then, the reason why Paul, in verse 9, could write what he wrote about himself to the self-justifying Corinthians was that nothing about Paul was Paul, Paul's foundation. I mean, do you ever wonder why he put that in there, that little, I'm the least and the last and the lowest? Why? Well, part of the reason is he's saying, listen, guys, I am the least. The Greek word there is I'm at the bottom of the barrel, scraping. That's me. I don't deserve to be called an apostle. In other words, and again, it's a great sense of the word, of the Greek word used. I am insufficient for this. I am inadequate for this. Verse 8, I am abnormally born. Why did you throw that in? We get our word abortion from the Greek word that's used here. That's Paul. The Corinthians were like, uh, we are not last, we are first. Don't you know who we are? Don't you know the gifts we have? You know, I felt this touch and and you were going to come take a stand and do something for Jesus? You know, boast, boast, boast. And they would say, you know, actually, I'm sufficient. I have spiritual gifts coming out of my ears. Now, can you imagine if Paul was sending his resume to the Corinthians for lead pastor? Okay, here it is. Ready? I'm last in my group, I'm very inadequate. And when Jesus appeared to me, I was so behind the curve because I wasted so much of my life fighting him. See? Christ died for our sins. Christ was buried. Christ was risen. Protos, first importance, foundational. That's our first point. That's our foundation. If We're not building on that foundation, then you have another gospel. Second point affirmation. And this is where the picture one and picture two come in. And what I want you to see here is that in these uh, foundational statements that Paul makes in verses 3 and 4, the one statement he's going to run with through the entirety of the chapter is on the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, and therefore the guaranteed resurrection of his people. So from verses 12 to 19, you can see there Paul pulls a kind of John Lennon and says, you know, let's imagine a world with no resurrection." And then he begins to show them the logical implications of there being no resurrection. He gives seven. They're not very good. Seven implications of no resurrection. Because of this, then Paul begins to make it very, very clear, as well as the rest of the New Testament. You know, this isn't something that we can skip over too easy. This isn't something for people only close to their death. This is something that um, we can't do without. Right? As we go along in our Christian pilgrimage If we don't really spend too much time developing a conviction on the resurrection, um, it's not good. So Paul says, the resurrection is at the very heart of any true understanding of the Christian faith. Now, do you understand that? The resurrection is foundational. If you like, the resurrection and not good times and good health make us know and feel our security about the end. Huge difference between the two. So in verse twenty, you see that Paul then turns the corner and he begins to make this statement then of affirmation. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. This is the Easter victory. Christ is alive, right? And Paul has labored to tell us in those opening verses. There's lots of people who've seen Christ. He appeared to many, many people. And then in verse twenty, you get two pictures there to try to drive home the point that Paul is making on the resurrection. The first picture, and you can see it there, is the first fruits. Christ is the first fruits of those who are fallen asleep. So what does he mean by first fruits? Well, first fruits was, and you can read this in Leviticus chapter 23, in the context of the Passover, there was a harvest time, and as indication of the offerings which they were to bring to God, the first fruits of the harvest were presented to God. And the appearance of these first fruits was indication that a whole lot more was coming. A whole harvest was to follow. And you're a bright group. I'm sure you're picking up on this, right? Christ has really risen. Christ is the first fruits. And therefore, thank God, because of his resurrection of Jesus, Christ is the very indication that those who are in Christ will, like Jesus, also rise from the dead. Guaranteed. And even though Jesus is not the first person to, to uh, rise from the dead, as you read your Bibles, we do know that those who were raised from the dead were raised to die again. But when Jesus was resurrected, he was raised to a life, a life which will never know death. Hebrews 7, 24, Jesus lives forever, right? He's alive, he's alive forevermore. And in that sense, he is the firstfruits of all alive in him. In other words, there's a whole lot more coming because Christ has been raised. Second picture then is a picture of sleep, of those who have fallen asleep at the end of verse 20. So Paul, having affirmed the fact of the resurrection, affirms that falling asleep is what death is like for the Christian. Now think of that, falling asleep. So we should fear death no more than we would fear falling asleep, right? We put our heads down at night. We take a nap in the afternoon. There is no fear in this. No fear at all. The only time there could be fear if we take a nap in the afternoon and our wife says, do the dishes before you take the nap. And we don't do the dishes. Massive amounts of fear, at least in our home, right? We go to sleep. We assume we're going to wake up and we do. We, We are out of it. We sleep. We wake up, we're right back into it. And says Paul, this is the picture of death for the Christian. a picture of bodies being laid in the casket as it were asleep. Pretty easy, right? Anyone who's ever seen a dead body in a casket will know that the person looks like they're asleep. Perfectly good picture then given. But there will be a day when the body which was laid to rest or cremated will be reawakened, will be refashioned, and will be given a wake-up call. Because there's a wake-up call of the bodies of all who have fallen asleep in Christ. Okay, so what happens when the believer dies? Well, their bodies go into the ground. Their bodies are cremated. Their souls, then, are instantly with Jesus Christ. Who says that? The Bible says that. Paul affirms it at least a few times. Here's two. 2 Corinthians 5.8. To be absent with the body is to be present with the Lord. Philippians one twenty one. for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, fruitful labor. Terrific. And then he says, yet what shall I choose? I don't know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. Okay? So, loved ones, look at what Jesus Christ has done for you by his work on the cross and the resurrection that God provided. This is a wonderful picture here of death as when falling asleep and waking up immediately finding that you're actually home. Now, how, how wonderful is that? How, how thrilling is that? Dwight L. Moody. Wonderful quote. He was talking to a group of individuals and he said to them, one day you will read in the papers that Dwight L. Moody has died. But don't you believe it? On that day, I shall be more alive than I ever, ever have been. Now, you compare that to Woody Allen's classic quote. It's not that I'm afraid of death. I just don't want to be around when it comes. Right? Now listen, that's why I pray for Woody Allen. I want him to become a Christian. And you know, perhaps one of the reasons we we may have trouble getting our minds wrapped around this and to be honestly happy and to be honestly thrilled about this prospect is because we may be so preoccupied with now being so earthbound in our pilgrimage, being so stuck, if you would, on what we have and what we're doing or what we're going to do or where we're going to go, what we're going to become or what people know of us, that the prospect of falling asleep and waking up to see Jesus Christ is either on the back burner and maybe if we were honest, we've never been moved by this prospect at all or we're afraid of the whole thing altogether. Right? Why? Well, maybe because we're so locked into what we are now right what we are now i love it here i love it here okay okay i can see where you might love it like here here but there's a whole world out there 14 million syrian refugees most of them by night have nothing like we know of of sleep and rest and and comforts murders rapes abortions occur on a on a Regular basis. You really like it here? You really like it here? When Paul says, loved ones, this is foundational. This is what we build our life on. And our spirits then will be set free from that earthbound preoccupation which frustrates so many of us. Which disappoints so many of us. Which depresses so many of us. Which entice so many of us. Or for a few of us, inflate us. See, when we get past all that, then and only then are we really, really living. uh, That all living the dream stuff, that's out there. This, This is life. This is life. It is so much better to be with Jesus. I'll live here, right? I'll live here, but it's so much better to be with Jesus and by God's grace. When we begin to have just an inkling of what Paul is saying when he says to be with Christ is far better, far better than being here, then we'll know. Then we'll know. Wrote this down in my notes Thursday late afternoon. First hymn that popped in my mind. On that bright and cloudless morning when the dead in Christ shall rise. And the glory of his resurrection share. When his chosen ones shall gather to their home beyond the skies. When the roll is called up yonder I'll be there. Right? I used to sing that when I was a kid. When the roll, right? On my tippy toes, I told the first service, roll is called up yonder. Yes, because it's happening. It's gonna happen. It's a guarantee. Better than here, far better than here. Well, why is that? Well, maybe it's because of the third verse. You know the third verse? Let us labor for the master from the dawn till setting sun, let us talk of all his wondrous love and care, then then when all of life is over and our work on earth is done, and the roll is called up yonder. I'll be there. You know, I really like it here. Okay, fine. Okay, fine. But like Paul, we can say, I will live for my Savior. I will live for my friend. He is so great. Jesus is so great. And again, you'll, I never get the sense that the Corinthians would say anything like that. Never. I'm going to be over there because it's so much better over there than being here. I'll be with him. So, in the early part of the 21st century, still the one subject which most people don't want to hear of is death. We don't want to hear about sex. But we don't want to hear about death. But it's a bit crazy because death is the one eventuality everyone's going to face, it's the one appointment we're all going to have to keep. Now, the Bible says many things clear on death. And many years ago, a pastor named G.R.G. Graham wrote a little book dying to live, and in that book, Pastor Graham makes five statements that he says the Bible says concerning death. Very straightforward, very basic, nothing too dramatic, but we need to find out what they are. First thing, death is real. Death is real. Now you may say, well, surely everybody believes this, but in actual fact, some people don't believe this. There are some who say that death is in the mind only. In fact, last night I was doing some reading, and I was just, this is wild. Really? Death is in the mind only, and that it's not an actuality. Now, that ought to be an insult to our intelligence, right? But if it's true, then a lot of funeral directors, boy, they're in big trouble, right? Big trouble. People are put in the ground, and they're still alive. Silly. Very silly. Death is real. Number two, death is an enemy. Verse 26, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Death is an intrusion into God's creation. Death is not natural. There's nothing natural about death. Uh, My great fear for the senior citizen of our community, because this is a lovely place to live, I get that. But I get this feeling that so many assumes everything's automatic. You die, you go to heaven, or you become an angel. You die, you go to heaven, or you go to someplace like heaven. And you see them in their last years, assuming this is all right, never questioning any line of thought that's different. And because they're very old, some think there's no way that these people are going to be judged. I mean, they're so old. How can a loving God judge these old people? They're so old. And they just go into death. Because it's natural. This is it. On the other side of that, a few years ago, while attending a viewing at a funeral home, I picked up this little book. Excuse me, answers to a child's question about death. And this is some of their statements. When someone dies, are they being punished? Death is never a punishment. Wrong. Death is a punishment of our sins. Is death like sleeping? Dying is nothing at all like sleeping. <laughs> yes, it is. Why do people die? Dying is a natural part of life. No, it is not. It is not. You see, death, number three, death is never the end for anyone. Every so often, you'll hear people people in common conversation say, well, when you're dead, you're dead. Or when you're dead, it's over. There's nothing after death. And you get this feeling that the person is saying that because they're just trying to protect their own line of thinking on that subject. They're hoping that they say it enough times, or they say it with a lot of conviction, it might be true. And they're trying to put the rest, that sneaking suspicion that God Almighty has put in every one of his... Human creations, Romans 1, Ecclesiastes 3, there is eternity in your heart. There's a psyche that tells you there is a God. There's something after death. God put that in every human being. And they try to put it to rest by saying silly things over and over again. Jesus, John chapter 5, verse 28, all who are in their graves will come forth. There's no exceptions. There's no exclusions. Everyone will be accounted for. And though our bodies and spirits are separated at death, it is the end of neither. For beyond death, there's not one destiny but two, right? We're not all going to go to the same place. There's going to be a judgment. There's going to be a day of account. There's nothing, there's nothing boastful about that. It should break my heart and your heart just to hear it and for me to say it. This is horrible, but it's true. It's appointed unto man once to die, says the Bible. And after this comes judgment. Death is real. Death is an enemy. Death is never the end to anyone Five, and finally, death for the believer is a defeated enemy. You can see this in verse 56 of this chapter. And what we're going to discover in the coming weeks is the wonder again of what Jesus has done upon the cross is such that the sting of death has been completely removed, right? The sting of death completely removed. And and because of this, although I will go through the physical experience of death, there will be no pain attached to my death in this way. Pain, perhaps, in the process of dying, more than likely. I mean, (laughs) I'm sorry. Whenever I think about my death, it's not a pretty picture, but that's just me. Pain, maybe, in the dying, but no pain in death itself. Why? Why is there no pain in death itself? Because of what Jesus has done upon the cross. Death gets one shot, and Jesus on the cross took the shot, sting gone, completely removed. So death may bark at us like a dog, but it doesn't have a bite, right? Why does death have no bite? Again, basic Christianity, because when Jesus bore our sins in his body on the tree, he removed the sting of death. We'll still die. That's why it's the last enemy to be destroyed. However, there's gonna be a day, a forever day, when there'll be no more death and no more pain and no more crying, And the well-lived life for Christ, which takes so much out of us at times, will never know emptiness and never know to feed fatigue again. But that's in heaven. And that's the believer's future. Winston Churchill, speaking on the death of King George VI, said this. During these last months, the king walked with death as if death were a companion, an acquaintance whom he recognized and did not fear. He was sustained not only by his natural buoyancy, but by the sincerity of his Christian faith. You know, what a privilege it must have been to be led by such a man. Well, what a privilege it, it is to hear of such a testimony. For what use is our faith in Jesus Christ? You know, all the time in study and all the time in worship and all the other things that we do. What well, what use is all that? When, when it comes to the finality of death, we have nothing to say. What is the use of our faith if we have nothing to sustain us and help us in the final days of our existence, right? Okay, most of us are doing pretty great now. Wonderful. We love you, Jesus. Wonderful. But when it comes, and I thought through this many a times on my own account this week, when it comes, what's it going to be like for you? Well, let me tell you this. The resurrection is the rock on which comes our stability, the resurrection is the rock which feeds a life. This is wholeness. Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Congregation believe this, embrace this, enjoying enjoy this. Lean heavily, lean heavily on this. Because all our alternatives are lousy and they're hopeless, they're empty and they're futile. Futile. Now we need to get ready for communion, but just just remind ourselves Christ died for our sins. Christ was buried, real death. And Christ was raised. That's our foundation. Nothing more, nothing less. And if you haven't, as of yet, taken a firm hold on this, because let's just say this whole talk is freaking you out a little bit about the death thing and all that stuff, then today is that day. You already have been held by Jesus Christ. He has a firm hold on you if you're a Christian. And so everything that would come to you and say, uh, you know, you're not going to make it. You'll never have enough. Your kids won't be okay. You're going to freak out when death comes. Or you'll never measure up. The Lord Jesus Christ looks at you, Christian, and says, you know what? You're right. You don't measure up and you never will measure up on your own. But I do. And at the cross... And in my resurrection, I stood in your place. So in me, and only in me, you measure up perfectly. And loved ones, that's our foundation. That's our foundation. Jesus goes on. And you know what, unbeliever? I can stand in your place now too. Because you're nothing without me. And eternity will be horrible and it's going to be wretched. All the while, I got a gift that's yours for the taking. Right there for the taking. So take it. Just take it. One quote from J.I. Packer. Real spiritual growth is always growth downward, so to speak. And to a profounder humi- humility which in healthy souls will become more and more apparent as they age. Why does he say that? Because real spiritual growth is knowing In my place, condemned Christ stood. And in Christ, in Christ and only in Christ. This is why I'm good with God. It's good news. Let's bow together and pray. Father, would you please make it clear to us all this morning that we are saved if we're in Christ. That we would perceive nothing in ourselves but all to Jesus Christ, the one and true Jesus Christ who bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we would die to sin and live for him. Amen. You can remain seated as we sing before communion.